everybody doing this glorious, wonderful day? My name is Christian Wagner. This is Scholastic Answers. So today I'm going to be giving a little bit of an introduction to Sedevacantism because that's the hot thing now, you know, not not that it's popular. Um, I mean, I guess it's semi-popular. The Diamonds have a pretty large following. The other Sedevacantists have a pretty large following. So it's not popular. It's just something that has been placed before a bunch of people who had no idea about what in the world Sedevacantism was. You think you think uh, Sarah from Franciscan University, who just enjoys an occasional Matt Frad interview, you think she had any idea what Sedevacantism was before the diamond Casman debate? She had no clue. She had absolutely no clue. She honestly probably barely even knows what Vatican II is. Or, uh, or any of the details about a papal election. She, she had no idea that, the, uh, that there are certain requirements in canon law. She had, she had no idea. I thought that they kind of just uh, came together and, and chose one of them. And there, there's no... Um, no uh, pre- uh, what, what, am I, what are the word I'm thinking of? There's no requirements for validity. She had no idea. So, uh, and she had no idea about... Um, the teaching of the earlier church. She had no idea this was said about religious liberty or that was said about freedom of speech or this was said about the uh, damnation the uh, damnation of uh, certain uh, groups not in communion with the apostolic see. She had no idea any of this stuff existed. But Brother Diamond decided to pull no punches and decided to throw out all of this uh, stuff for Sarah from Franciscan's viewing pleasure. And now Sarah from Franciscan is very confused. Is Roman Catholicism even true? Is Sedevacantism true? What what is what does Sarah do? Well, all of you uh, blissfully ignorant normies out there, I will be putting before you a short introduction to what in the world is Sedevacantism? What are the different beliefs that may exist within uh, the general range of Sedevacantists? And how do you go about uh, talking with Sedevacantus or thinking through these issues? Now, I, what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be going through what's known as the Little Catechism on Sedevacantism. This is produced by uh, the Dominicans of Avrier, or Avril, still, still know how to pronounce it. But why they're really good and why I like to uh, bring up their material is because they actually agree with the Sedvacontists that uh, the popes are in heresy. Now, I don't agree with the, I don't agree with them on that issue. Um, 
but the the advantage of that is is that it argues on different grounds than you're normally going to get because you can uh, watch many of the different Catholic commentators who have and will be reviewing this this debate between Casman and Diamond. And we'll be talking on this issue. What they'll be doing is they'll be going through uh, an almost infinite amount of instances of um, of things that Francis might have said. Uh, Pope Francis might have said things that Pope Benedict XVI might have said, or things that John Paul II did. Pope St. John Paul II, I'm sorry. Uh, They'll be going through all of these instances. Well, does Pope John Paul II kissing the Quran mean this? Or does saying uh, St. John the Baptist pray for Islam mean that? Or does um, Pope Leo XIII teach this on religious liberty? And how does that relate to Dignitatis Humanae? And in all of these uh, various small instances, um, that they are going to be bringing up. But what I really like about uh, certain um, certain Thomistic sources who are uh, who are part of the SSPX, who when they respond to this issue, they're like, yeah, all that stuff is heretical. But um, even then, I, the conclusion doesn't follow. So I think this adds to us who may disagree with the uh, what's called the SSPX resistance on um, on the issue of papal heresy. We may disagree with them. But this provides us a second layer of argumentation that I think is a lot easier for people to digest. It doesn't require a, uh, a memorization of an infinite sort of amount of arguments. It just uh, relies on a few uh, solid principles. Hey, Christian, great video in response to Casman versus Diamond Wade. Thank you very much. Uh, I, and if Matt Frad, if you're out there, uh, thank you very much for sharing the video. I really do appreciate you sharing that. Uh, but there's a role for that too, although it's good to hear this side too. Yeah, I, I think I definitely think there's there's a role for discussing um, the various instances and uh, the continuity of teaching. I think actually I won't even won't even get into that right now. That would lead me uh, down a whole another rabbit hole. But before we continue, uh, remember this week is still Ember Week, and Ember Week is traditionally when you pray for ordinance who are going to be ordained because this is one of the traditional times of the year when ordinands are ordained. So make sure you continue to pray for uh, for holy priests, continue to pray for your current priests. Remember, uh, Friday is full fast and full abstinence, which means abstain from meat at all meals, only one full meal, which is dinner, and then two what are called collations, which are, you think of them like half meals, very small. Um, Normal, a traditional one is like a, a slice of toast or, or something of that, or maybe a soup or something like that. And then Saturday is full fast, so two collations, one meal, and then also partial abstinence, which means no meat for breakfast and lunch, those two small collations, but you can have meat for dinner. So remember to to uh, fast and to abstain. So. Now, I think we are about ready for the prayer. So, let us pray. Ineffable creator, who out of the treasure of thy wisdom has appointed the hierarchies of angels and set them in admirable order high above the heavens and has disposed the diverse portions of the universe in such marvelous array. Thou who art called the true source of light and supereminent principle of wisdom, be pleased to cast a beam of thy radiance upon the darkness of my mind and dispel from me the double darkness of sin and ignorance into which I have been born. Thou who makest eloquent the tongues of little children, fashion my words and pour upon my lips the grace of thy benediction. Grant me penetration to understand. 
capacity to retain, method and facility in study, subtlety and interpretation, and abundant grace of expression. Order the beginning, direct the progress, and perfect the achievement of my work. Thou who art true God and man, and liveth and reigneth forever and ever. Amen. John of St. Thomas, pray for us. St. Robert Bellarmine, pray for us. Okay, let us get right into this. Again, you can... So true, I now have my little brothers watching your videos. Absolute chads. Okay. I'm going to put myself down there. Does that work? Yes, it does work. Dominicans of Avrier, they have some very good stuff. I really do like them. But obviously, I have my disagreements with them. So. You know, I'm going to start up here with the with the position of Archbishop Lefebvre. I think it's important. To, actually, no, I'm going to start with the introduction. And no, I did not look how to pronounce Scylla in Chardibis. So I'm just going to call this Char. So in the Strait of Messina between Sicily and Italy, there are two formidable reefs, Scylla and Char. It is important when crossing to avoid both reefs. Most imprudent or unskilled navigators wanting to avoid one were shipwrecked on the other. They fell from Scylla to Char. Currently facing the crisis in the church, there are two errors to avoid. Modernism, which little by little makes us lose the faith, instead of a Kantism, which leads towards schism. If we want to remain Catholic, we must pass between heresy and schism, between Scylla and Char. In this short catechism, we study one of the two reefs, but we must not be... But the other must not be forgotten. Under the pretext of avoiding the dangers of Sedvacantism, the dangers of modernism disseminated by the conciliar church must not be minimized. And again, remember, this is just me providing context with uh, me providing context by reading this. I don't uh, exactly agree. But again, we're not focusing on um, on the other reef right now. We're focusing right now on Sedvacantism, why it's wrong. So the position of Archbishop Lefebvre, and if for those out there who do not know, I will provide some context for Archbishop Lefebvre. Archbishop Lefebvre, actually, I have a, his picture on, on my desk right here. Archbishop Lefebvre. I will I'll make myself. Oh, no, I just disappeared myself. There you go. This is Archbishop Lefebvre right here. He, uh, I, I really do like Archbishop Lefebvre. I'm a huge fan. Um, I, again, do not agree with everything Archbishop Lefebvre said, but he was a bishop who was at Vatican II. Um, he was the apostolic uh, nuncio to, I think it was French Africa. He was uh, a very, very important bishop in the 20th century. He ended up, um, after Vatican II, disagreeing with a lot of the stuff that Vatican II did, and he became the head of, uh, of the traditionalist movement, really brought back the, um, uh, well, retained the Latin Mass. And he is really the principal for why, uh, why we even have the Latin Mass today. He was the one who uh, stuck by and fought for it. So he uh, he did some controversial things, like he consecrated bishops without the approval of the Holy See. He was excommunicated, um, although uh, the the bishops he he consecrated were eventually um, declared to have been not excommunicated uh, in reality. So that those those canonical penalties were lifted. So uh, very controversial figure. Um, uh, head of the traditionalist movement, which is why uh, he makes such a good uh, argument uh, when it comes to this, because he's not going to, um, he's not going to really focus on the, whether there was heresy or error or not. He's going to say, yes, there was, there was a bunch of error in heresy that I spent my entire life trying to fight, but here's why they're still wrong. 
So this provides a, a different viewpoint that we can we can argue from. And it's really helpful uh, in order to to hear what he has to say. Okay, there's some questions. What version of the prayer for St. Thomas do you use? I use the one from Studiorum Ducem. Uh, that's uh, from Pius the 11th. Yes, Pius the 11th. Is it Pius the 11th or Benedict the 15th? Pius the 11th, yeah. Um, so if you just look up the encyclical, that's the version which is given in the encyclical. So why not use it? Yeah, I'm not uh, SSPX, but have a great amount of respect for Archbishop Lefebvre. Archbishop Lefebvre, pray for us. So true. I think I think honestly, he's a he 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 definitely he he's like a Savonarola figure for me. Like Savonarola, uh, and actually, we're going to talk about Savonarola later. This article does talk about him. Savonarola was a monk in the late 15th century. He's seen as a proto-Protestant, although that's stupid because he was a he was a Dominican monk. And he was faithful to the church's teaching. But there was a, a bad pope uh, who was very licentious, uh, the Borgia Pope, um, Alexander, I can't remember what number it is, Alex, Pope Alexander. Uh, very, um, very not not a great guy. <laughs> Let's just put it like that. Definitely not a great guy. And those two uh, clashed heads and Savonarola eventually was hung and burned for it. Uh, although he was a... Um, a strong defender of the faith. So while I think Savonarola, some of his comments probably weren't correct uh, when he said uh, he, he can be seen as a, a bit of a sort of proto set of a contest figure. Um, he definitely was a saint though, a very holy man and a martyr. So let's continue. The position that we are going to put forward is that of Archbishop Lefebvre and that which at Avrier we have always defended. Here's a short summary. Archbishop Lefebvre publicly asked himself the question, we find ourselves truly before an excessively grave dilemma that I think has never arisen in the church, that he is uh, who is seated on the throne of Peter participates in religion of the false gods. I do not think that this has ever occurred in the entire history of the church. If someone says that the Pope is an apostate, a heretic, a schismatic, according to the probable opinion of the theologians, if it were true, the Pope would no longer be Pope, and consequently we would uh, be in the set of a Conte situation. It is an option. I do not say that it cannot have some arguments in its favor. So Archbishop Lefebvre clearly is, uh, is um, accepting the minor premise that, uh, that the Pope is uh, that the Pope is participating in the religion of the false gods. It is not impossible that this hypothesis will one day be confirmed by the church, for it has some serious arguments. Many indeed are the acts of Paul VI that accomplished by a bishop or a theologian 20 years ago would have been condemned as suspect of heresy, favoring heresy. This is a uh, suspect of heresy or favoring heresy. That's a, a technical uh, censure of something which... Um, which is leading to a denial of something de fide. However, after reflection, he prepared the opposite, preferred the opposite solution. But I do not think that it is a, the solution that we should take, that we should follow. For the moment, I personally think it would be a mistake to follow this hypothesis. But this does not mean, for all that, that I'm absolutely sure 
to be correct in the position that I take. I'm placing myself there in a prudential manner. It is rather under this area that I place myself, more under the theological domain, purely theoretical. I think that God asks us to have clear ideas, not only from a purely theoretical and theological viewpoint, but also in practice. When things are very difficult and delicate, and to act with a certain wisdom, a certain prudence, that can be seen in a bit uh, in a contradiction with certain principles, not to be of pure logic. So what Archbishop Lefebvre is saying is that with our with our purely uh, practical action uh, within this crisis, because I think even if even if we're going to say uh, that we disagree with Archbishop Lefebvre or with um, with those of uh, Avrier or or whoever it may be on the on um, the severity of what the popes or what the church is saying, there there's still we can still admit that there's some sort of crisis that after um, the era of the mid 20th century that certain bad things have been happening. We, we can admit that. So we need to be prudent of, okay, how are we going to respond to this? How are we going to respond to it? Instead of a contism is not the option uh, to responding to this crisis that, uh, that, that has happened. As long as I do not have the proof that the Pope is not the Pope. Well, I presume that he is, that he is Pope. So again, the fact that there is a set of a Conte is going to be something that needs to be proved. It can't be assumed. We assume that um, that somebody who is materially in succession to the popes before Vatican II is the pope unless proven otherwise. The pope is innocent unless proven uh, guilty, so to speak. I do not say that there cannot be arguments and can put one in doubt in certain cases, but one must have the proof that is not only a doubt, a valid doubt. If the argument is doubtful, we must not have the right to take an enormous consequence away from it. This is hugely important in these debates right here, what Archbishop Lefebvre just said, is that when it comes to these arguments for a set of a conte, we need not only doubtful arguments on doubtful principles, because it is an enormous consequence to say that the Pope is not the Pope. That is an enormous consequence. So we need some very airtight argumentation to be put forth. So really, even if even if there is a single doubt when it comes to the argumentation and you accept everything else the set of a con to say doesn't matter because of the enormity of the consequences, you need to be airtight on everything. No doubts whatsoever. That is, that is crucial when it comes to these uh, discussions. We're not on equal ground here, so to speak. Definitely not. The priestly society does not accept this solution, but based on the history of the church and the doctrine of the theologians, thinks that the Pope can promote, uh, thinks that the, pro the Pope can promote the ruin of the church by choosing bad collaborators and letting them act, signing decrees that do not use his infallibility, sometimes even by his own admission, and that caused considerable damage to the church. Nothing is more dangerous for the church than liberal popes who are in continual contradiction. So what Archbishop Lefebvre is saying is when it comes to, uh, when it comes to the popes, they can do all of these bad things. So you can, you can concede. I don't concede, but you can concede if you wish that this very, um, these very bad things are happening uh, when it comes to uh, signing decrees that do not use his infallibility, choosing bad collaborators, letting them act, um, admitting uh, that they are doing such causing damage to the church, all that stuff can happen, but that still doesn't lead us to the set of a contest conclusion. So we can take uh, sort of, I guess, Archbishop Lefebvre's position in argumentum.
In practice, this does not have influence on our practical conduct because we firmly and courageously reject all that is against the faith without knowing from whence it comes, without knowing who is guilty. So questions and answers. And this is going to be where we get into the meat of the catechism. We kind of got into a bit of the prolegomena so far, the first things. What is sedificantism? Sedificantism is the opinion of those who think that the most recent popes since the Second Vatican Council are not true popes. Consequently, the see of Peter is not occupied, which is expressed in Latin by the formula sedificante. So basically, sedificantism in its most basic form is just saying there is no pope. Now, technically, um, sedificantism can be used in a very broad sense. Uh, for example, if any of you remember the time that I interviewed Pope Michael uh, and Fidelia Manime Pumese Recordium Dei Requisicante Pace for sure. Um, but if you remember, I interviewed Pope Michael. He believed he was Pope. He believed the See of Peter uh, is not occupied. Therefore, strictly, we don't call him a Seda the Contest. He's technically a conciliarist, but broadly speaking, uh, we can refer to them as set of a contest. So it's really the genus is going to be traditionalist movement. And then the the specific difference of a set of a contest is somebody who thinks that the sea was vacated after Vatican II. So the question of whether it was unvacated, uh, I, don't, I don't think it really comes up. We can use set of a contest in a broad sense to include uh, them. So where does this opinion come from? This opinion was caused by the very grave crisis which uh, has occurred, uh, has been occurring in the church since the last council, a crisis that Archbishop Lefebvre justly called the Third World War. The main cause of the crisis has been the dereliction of the Roman pontiffs who teach are allowed to be propagated very serious errors uh, on the subjects of ecumenism, religious liberty, collegiality, etc. So these are going to be the errors that Brother Diamond is going to bring up. Humanism, religious liberty, collegiality, all of the all of these uh, various different issues. Instead of a contest, think that the real popes could not be responsible for such a crisis. Consequently, they do not consider them to be real popes. And you'll notice in uh, in Brother Diamond's videos, he'll say, quote, pope, end quote. Uh, he is a quote, pope, quote, orthodox. He really likes to put up the uh, scare quotes when he speaks. Could you briefly explain what the crisis in the church consists of? And I'm not going to I'm not going to go over uh, what the crisis of the church. I guess it, give, it, it it'll put us into a little bit more of their mind. So why not? That which speaks uh, the most is all the speeches published in the um, Osservatore Romano that constantly reaffirm the principle of religious liberty, state secularism, ecumenism, a principle that is in formal contradiction with the constant unanimous teaching of the pontifical magisterium before the Second Vatican Council. That's going to be what they point to is some sort of disconnect between the uh, teaching of the magisterium before and the teaching of the magisterium in and after Vatican II. In the past, it was possible that some popes were not equal in their mission. And I think this is honestly the the best paragraph in this whole thing to realize is there are uh, cases of, of bad popes before Vatican II. This isn't... Um, like the Timothy Gordon tweet that he tweeted uh, the other day, there were zero female doctors of the church before Vatican II. Now there's four. It's not there were zero uh, bad popes before Vatican II. Now there's four. No, no, that not what we're saying. And not not even uh, that I'm judging that the popes after Vatican II were bad. Um, I don't make that judgment. But uh, there were plenty of bad popes that the church has judged as bad popes. 
before Vatican II. So it's it's not out of the ordinary that we have something like this happening. Um, so I, I think uh, the diamonds and set of accounts in general try to bring a lot of shock and awe uh, before us. But we have to always remember that there were bad popes um, in the history of the church. In the past, it was possible that some popes were not equal in their mission. They could fail to keep at one time or another their pastoral role, putting in more or less serious, more or less direct danger to the unity of the faith in the Holy Church. But this attitude explains itself for essentially moral reasons. None of these popes were attached to error by intellectual conviction. They all fell short without a fundamentally intellectual adherence to error. And this came short from a lack of courage in the midst of persecution, such as Liberius. And remember, um, Liberius, he sacrificed incense to idols. He was a, a pope in the very early church. Sometimes from a certain... Uh, I never can pronounce that word and an excess of mediation, such as Honorius and Vigilius. Remember Honorius and Vigilius had certain Christological issues, sometimes even from a sort of theological intemperance, such as John the 22nd. John the 22nd is a very interesting case. He was a, I want to say late medieval Pope. I, I want to say 14th centuries when uh, John the 22nd, John the 23rd, John the 22nd. Uh, yes, 14th century. Uh, he died in 1334. He was a pope in the 14th century who taught um, a, a heresy uh, when it came to the beatific vision, that the beatific vision um, was that the beatific vision was delayed until after the resurrection, and that the saints are not currently enjoying the beatific vision. Uh, that was John the 22nd. It's to be noted that he taught it in. Um, in certain homilies, not that he wrote encyclical about this or anything like that. The most serious attitude of all, that of Pope Honorius, warns a favins harinsum, uh, and that's favoring heresy. And I know I butchered that Latin. Sorry about that. It does not uh, cause the Pope to be condemned as a formal heretic. But in view of these isolated cases, the constant attitude of all the popes since the Second Vatican Council has an entirely different appearance. The daily preaching of these sovereign pontiffs is constantly spotted with false principles of religious liberty, ecumenism, and collegiality. These are grave errors, and they are the consequence of the heresy of the 20th century, using the expression of Madaran, the heresy of neo-modernism. Constant repeat, uh, repeated errors from John the 23rd to Paul the 6th to Benedict the 16th. Errors that are not the consequence of passing weakness, or can't pronounce that, but on the contrary, are the expression of a fundamental adherence of the intelligence, the affirmation of an in informed conviction. This is why such a situation is really and truly without precedent. So that is what they're going to argue. And do set of a contest agree among themselves? No, far from it. To use the term of set of a contest, the set of a contest are scattered among at least six different dividing lines. So there's actually a, a lot of diversity within a set of a contests and really what you, um, what you, what you see with the set of a contests is uh, it, it's, it's not exactly a unified movement. And what you're going to see with the diamonds the diamonds really have some of the most extreme uh, positions when it comes to set of a contism. and most set of a contest would say that they're heretics, um, that they go too far. <laughs> Not that they go too far. Uh, they, they are what are called Feniites. If you aren't aware of what Feniites are, it, it's an error when it comes to uh, baptism of desire. It's, uh, it has to do with 
um, a denial of a, a desire for baptism being sufficient for salvation. So if you die before baptism, uh, water baptism, physical water baptism, you're, you're done, basically. Oh, oh, Liberius uh, signed Rumini. Oh, yeah, I mixed them up. Yeah, Liberius uh, basically signed a questionable uh, Arian council. Sorry, I mixed up mixed up my popes. Who? Which pope am I thinking of that burnt idols? I just talked about him yesterday. I can't remember his name off the top of my head. Sorry about that. Okay, so there are six different dividing lines when it comes to um, sort of a Kantism. So first, there's total vacancy. So some would say that the man sitting on the the chair of Peter can in no way be called Pope. There's nothing about him that's Pope except some sort of um, that, that he's sitting on the same chair that the Popes used to sit on. Now, there's a second group uh, with instead of a contism is the formal material uh, distinction. But they say that formally they are uh devoid of the grace of the papacy, but materially they can be called popes and that they succeed uh, to the papacy. And if you're having trouble with understanding this formal material distinction, think about it like the human. The human's matter is his body and his form is his soul. So what they are saying is that the form of the papacy, that is the soul of the papacy, is departed. But the matter of the papacy, that is the body of the papacy, is still there. So basically, the the men sitting on the uh, chair of Peter are a bunch of dead corpses, but they're still technically a corpse. They're still a body. And uh, the second one is those who accept the consecrations without apostolic mandate and those the refusal of these consecrations. What that means is basically in order to have the consecration of a bishop, you need to have what's called the apostolic mandate. So the Pope needs to say, needs to okay the consecration. Some of them say, well, we're in a time of crisis. Therefore we can still do the consecrations without the apostolic mandate. And others say, well, you still kind of need it. So there's no bishops anymore. We kind of just sit at home and pray the rosary and hope for the best. The third, and this is the most interesting uh, distinction, really uh, talking to a set of a contest, a friend of mine, I was first introduced to this distinction. The first rejection out of the church of all those who are not set of a contest. So some will say, uh, you Novus Ordo, Bogus Ordo, conciliarists, big dummies, you, you're you outside of the church and you're going to burn in hell because you're not set of a contest. But actually, there's plenty uh, who uh, would would refuse to make that judgment. There's there's plenty of who would say that uh, we're not in schism with one another um, and that we just have varying uh, theological opinions and, and such. So. There's there's actually a lot who who aren't going to be super harsh, and I want uh, you guys to remember that the the Diamond Bro uh, followers are not representative of all of set of a contest. I've actually met a, a a quite nice set of a contest. So ecclesiastical laws keep their imperative force versus the laws are stripped of executionary force, and then the last one is the most interesting one is acceptance of the principle of a conclave outside of the Roman line versus refusal of such a possibility. And this is a dis- the distinction between the conciliarists and the non-conciliarists, uh, conclavists and the non-conclavists. So there's a group of set of contests who are called conclavists who want to hold a conclave in order to elect a new pope. And there are others who say, well, no, nah, that's not going to happen because we've got no cardinals.
Okay, and then there's a last division. Is there is disagreements over when the Sedvacante uh, first started, and some say it's the death of Pius Twelfth. Some uh, and their reasoning for this is because John the Twenty Third was a heretic when he uh, took office. Since Pachim and Teres, Teres, sorry, I'm trying to roll my R's better. Uh, in this uh, is an encyclical that John the Twenty Third wrote, and they're reasoning is because uh, it's heretical and then next is the john the death of john the 23rd and they would say because uh paul the sixth pope saint paul the sixth sorry was uh, a heretic and then the other one is since the promulgation of religious liberty which happened december 7th oh look that's um pearl harbor day december 7th 1965 and uh their reasoning for this is because that was a heretical declaration Good thing I good thing I uh I saw this man this mic is it's giving me some grief. Let me Good thing I checked the live chat. That was that was kind of crazy. When did I uh when did I cut out? Right when I was about to get my drink of water or something. Somebody let me know. Okay. I'm going to let me see if I can get my mic working again. Okay. I'm going to take like a two-minute break to fix the mic. Just going to type that just in case you need me. Okay, the mic is fixed. Thanks be to God. Okay, so yeah, after the promulgation of the freedom, December 7th, 1961, 65 quote. Yeah, okay, so some very schizo 
and I mean schizo in the uh, in the nicest way. And definitely let me know if you can you can hear me and if it's coming through clear. Uh, the the very schizo one will say that Paul the Six was actually replaced by a bodily double. Let me, let me see if I can find uh, one of one of like the charts they make of Paul the Sixth double. Very entertaining. Um, the imposter Paul the Sixth. Yeah. Let me share my screen. Okay. Oh, I'm good. Thanks be to God. Stop share. Let's get back to uh there you go. The imposter Paul the Sixth. There they are. The imposter Pope Paul the Sixth. Has anyone heard this one? Yeah, they say his nose is different. It's the first thing. Which I mean, yeah, I guess it does kind of look a little different. It might just be they say like he has different like aging spots, which man, they say he kind of looks different from the face. So man, that is uh say he had a um that he was betrayed by agents of Satan, dodgy cardinals placed all around him, and this way he was martyred. Oh. There you go. I mean, to be fair, they do look really different. But who knows? I, I don't I don't think we can uh I mean if if they did they got like a really um they got a really good body double and I mean to like match his voice and mannerisms and everything and yeah, they must have got a really good body double but yeah that that's the that's the whole body double theory yes it was Pope Marcellinus that that's who burned idols because they said at the at the synod, judge thyself. Okay, so now we're going to be getting into some of the arguments they use and how we can uh, deal with these arguments. So they have a priori arguments and a posteriori arguments. And as a quick note, if you want to learn more about a priori and a posteriori arguments, let me uh, pull it up. Like, get that little catechism of logic that I just wrote. Grab it on Amazon. Make sure you pick up a copy. Let's see. Can I remember where I wrote about a priori and a posteriori arguments? It's right at the end. Last chapter. Let me pick it up. Okay. Here we go. This is my uh, edited copy. That's why there are various. Um, there's 278 questions in the whole thing. So it's fun. So first, what is logical order? It is the order whereby we know certain conclusions. What is ontological order? It is the order of causality whereby a thing exists. What is a priori reasoning? A priori reasoning is reasoning from cause to effect, i.e. in both the logical and ontological order. Give me an example. A man is a good painter, therefore he will paint good paintings. The skill of the painter is the ontological cause of good painting. It's also the logical cause of us knowing that it's uh, that he's going to paint good paintings. What is a posteriori reasoning? Reasoning from effect to cause, i.e. only in the logical order. Give me an example. There's a good painting. Therefore, a good painter must have caused this. Boom. Pick up a copy. Little catechism on logic. Okay. Now, after that brief aside, now that we know what 
a priori and a posteriori arguments are. A priori, they say, the Pope being a heretic, he cannot be the true Pope, which has been proven in theological manner or in a legal manner. Uh, so they say if the Pope is a heretic, can't be true Pope, and it's proved theologically. And this is, uh, if you want to learn about syllogisms, this is technically an epikyrema. I can never pronounce it. Epikyrema. Epikyrema. Uh, on hand it's on hand so when you do a syllogism and then you put proofs uh kind of put them within the syllogism a heretic cannot be the head of the church but john paul ii is a heretic therefore or in a legal manner church law invalidates the election of a heretic but cardinal wyotla or ratzinger was a heretic at the time of his election therefore so that's their a priori reasoning now a second a priori argument they say, again, the current pope was consecrated bishop with the new Episcopal consecration invented by Paul VI, so he is not a bishop. But to be a pope, one must be the bishop of Rome, therefore the conclusion follows. And then the third is going to be an a posteriori argument. So they're going to gather all the evidence, they're going to look at all of the effects, and then they're going to reason back to the cause. They say, finally, uh, we note that the actions taken by the popes are bad or erroneous while they should be covered by infallibility. Therefore, these popes are not really popes. So this is going to be their three main arguments right here. So first, the theological argument for the heresy of the papacy. So this is going to be a heretic cannot be the head of the church, but John Paul II is a heretic, therefore. So, but isn't it true that the pope who becomes a heretic loses the pontificate? St. Robert Bellarmine says that a pope who formally and manifestly became a heretic, would lose the pontificate. And remember, as we talked about yesterday, St. Robert Bellarmine says that the Pope who formally and manifestly becomes a heretic loses the pontificate ipso facto, so in itself, quo ad se. So quo ad se means basically according to the thing. So there's a distinction between quo ad se, according to the thing, and quo ad nos, according to us. So what St. Robert Bellarmine is going to say is, well, the Pope who formally and manifestly becomes a heretic loses the papacy in himself, but does not lose the papacy according to us. So we still have to follow it unless there is some declar a declaratory sentence from the church. For that to apply to John Paul II, he would have to be a formal heretic. So first, he has to be a formal heretic, deliberately refusing the church's magisterium. And this formal heresy would have to be manifest in the eyes of all. So this is pretty high standards. We have to say that John Paul II would have had to uh, be a heretic first. And then also he would have to know about his heresy and have, would have to formalize it by not placing any impediments in front of it. So it could be from invincible ignorance, could be from fear, could be from many different cases that uh, a heresy is material and does not formalize. But though uh, the Pope since Paul VI, and especially John uh, Paul II, make heretical affirmations or statements in, that lead to heresy rather often. So again, this is the Dominicans of Avrier, so of course they're going to say that. Cannot be easily shown that they are aware of rejecting a dogma of the church. So you would have to, what you would have to do in order to make this judgment is first, all the way back here, first, we have to assume Bellarmine's right. So that's, that's, you have to prove first Bellarmine's right. Second, uh, you're going to, you're, it's still not going to follow because Bellarmine doesn't say quad knows that the Pope loses the pontificate by formal uh, manifest heretic heresy. And then third, you'd also have to prove 
that uh, that the Pope was aware of rejecting a dogma of the church after already proving that there was a certain heresy. So it's a lot it's a lot less cut and dry that the set of accomplices are going to make you think. And as long as there is no sure proof, then it is more prudent to refrain from judging. And again, we cannot have certain conclusions on uncertain premises. So there's no sure proof that uh, the popes have been formally and manifestly heretical. It's not sure. So what's prudent is to refrain from judging or and then to defer uh, to the judgment of one better than yourself. That would be, in this case, the only one worthy to do this would be an ecumenical council who has been tasked with the job of judging this. This was Archbishop Lefebvre's line of conduct. And I'm going to check the live chat real quick. Yeah, the, t the last two do really look uh, look different. Yeah, it's true. Maybe uh, fall into the schizo uh, imposture uh, views. If a Catholic uh, were convict, uh, convinced that John Paul II or any other pope after Vatican II is a formal manifest heretic, should he then conclude that he is no longer pope? So now we have, let's say, let's let's just grant, let's just grant what the set of cons is saying. We are convinced now that John Paul II or Benedict XVI or Francis, we are convict, convinced that they are both formally and manifestly heretical. So we have... We have uh, been convinced. If this is proved, should we still conclude that he is no longer Pope? No. He should not, because according to the common opinion, which is what Suarez says, or the even the more common opinion, Billuart, theologians think that even a heretical Pope continu can continue to exercise the papacy. That is the more common opinion of theologians. This is something which is theologically certain so theologically certain is basically what all the theologians are going to commonly teach for him to lose his jurisdiction the catholic bishops the only judges in matters of faith besides the pope by divine will would have to make a declaration denouncing the pope's heresy and if you want to know about the mechanics of how this works you can uh, look at my two and a half hour review yesterday on this very issue of how john of saint thomas squares how this works so even then, it is the more common opinion that God would still um, sustain the heretical pope in the exercise of the papacy until in the jurisdiction granted until the Catholic bishops come together and judge him. So according to the more common opinion, and this is what Abdullah says, according to the more common opinion, Christ, by a particular providence, for the common good and tranquility of the church continues to give jurisdiction to an even manifestly heretical pope until such a time as he should be declared a manifest heretic by the church. This is the more common opinion, because imagine how horrific it would be if the church was left in a set of a Conte position. That's basically the argumentation for why uh, this occurs. Now, in so serious a matter, it is not prudent to go against the common opinion. So even granting all of these arguments, uh, which were kind of five degrees in at this point, still wouldn't follow. You have to take a less common opinion. Um, and, and so it's it's really uh, untenable. And then uh, he's going to, the catechism is going to explain how this, uh, how it works, that you have a heretic who's also the head of the church, who's not a member of the body. So, but how can a heretic who's no longer a member of the church be its leader or head? Uh, Father Gary Goulagrange, basing his reasoning on Bill Wart, explains in his treatise on the incarnation of the word which is his commentary on Tertiopars. 
that a heretical pope, while no longer a member of the church, can still be her head. Indeed, what is impossible in the case of a physical head, like um, this would be a physical head, my head, is possible, albeit abnormal for a secondary moral head. And the moral of the, the moral head it would be like the, the president of America or the king of a country or something. That would be a moral head versus a physical head is talking about literally our head or the father of a family is another example of a moral head. Now, a secondary moral head is somebody who stands in the person of another. The reason is this, whereas a physical head cannot influence the members without receiving the vital influence of the soul. So the way in which our head influences our body is because um, it receives a certain influx from the soul. But a moral head, as in the Roman pontiff, can exercise jurisdiction over the church, even if he does not receive from the soul of the church any influx of interior faith or charity. So when it comes to a moral head, it does not need to receive from the soul in order to give to the body. In short, the Pope is con constituted a member of the church by his personal faith, which he can lose, but he is the head of the visible church by jurisdiction and authority that can coexist with heresy. I'm going to check the live chat real quick. Nope, nothing. Okay, I will continue. The canonical argument of the heresy of the Pope. And now this is something that, um, that the set of contest are going to bring up again. So the set of contest based their uh, position on the apostolic constitution, Cumex uh, Apostolatus of Pope Paul IV. But such good studies have shown that this constitution lost its legal force. Even set of contest priests recognize it. We cannot use the bull of Pope Paul IV to prove that the Holy See is currently vacant, but only to prove the possibility that it can happen. That which remains valid in this constitution is its dogmatic aspect, and consequently it cannot make be made to say more than the theological argument already examined. So basically, um, Pope Paul IV's bull, it doesn't have legal force. So what happens is, and it's going to mention it, um, it's going to mention it down here. What happens with canon law is a certain canon is going to lose its force when a new uh, code is brought forward. So, for example, um, those various rules in the 1917 code are uh, are not in uh, force after the code that Pope St. John Paul II uh, put forward, the 83 Code of Canon Law. Uh, so that's the way in which uh, canon law works. That's just, that's just how it works. So you can't be pointing to um, a code which, uh, a certain law which does not have force anymore, which would be for the uh, law of Pope Paul IV. That would in be included in that abrogation. So, uh, and I think many say that the code in the G Gaspari edition refers in its note to Cumex Apostolatus Constitution. And then the Gaspari edition is a code of canon law compiled and annotated with the footnotes by the Italian Cardinal Pietro Gaspari. In the notes of the 1970 code, he provides many links to the sources of that very code. So counter-argument one, these notes of the code in the Gaspari edition mentioned the sources of the code. But this does not mean that all of its sources are still in force. It's pretty obvious is you might have a certain footnote, but that doesn't mean that the sources are still in force. Counter-argument two, the 1917 code says in Canon 6 
that the punishments that are not mentioned in the code are abrogated. Now, the Cumex Apostolatus Constitution was a penal law because it inflicted the revocation of an ecclesiastical office, and the punishments that it prescribed were not picked up again in the code. So, again, this is just the way code of uh, canon law works, is when you have penal laws, if they aren't mentioned again, they're revoked. Uh, there is even more. Even before the new code, St. Pius X had already abrogated Paul IV's constitution by his constitution, Vacante Sede uh, Apostolica, Apostolica, I'm sorry, Vacante Sede Apostolica, sorry, uh, which declares null any censure able to remove the active or passive voice from the cardinals of the conclave. And Canon 160, the code declares that the election of the Pope is regulated only by this constitution of St. Pius X. And then, um, and then the fourth counter argument is basically the same. But I think what is really important is the fact that it was very clear in the 19th century that they did not, uh, they did not recognize that Cumex was something which was still in Force, because, you know, for example, it mentions cardinals cannot be heretics before their election. Now, can anybody think of a famous 19th century cardinal who was a heretic before his election? Can anybody think of it? It's a million dollar question. Can anybody think of it? waiting nobody nobody can think of it and i'm answering your question right now while i wait to see newman newman yes exactly newman was publicly formally and manifestly heretical before his being raised to the cardinalate so it's very clear that if you read the text of paul the fourth's bull cumex you see that Newman would fall under this. Exactly. Uh, Sedes uh, generally aren't relying on Cumex, by the way. Yes, that's really basically, um, that's basically uh, kind of a, a diamond argument that he brought up over and over again in the debate. And SD Wright, he is, he is a, very, uh, a very good set of contests, by the way. Very good guy. So that is going to be the argument uh, brought forth the argument from the nullity of the Pope's Episcopal uh, consecration. So this is the argument. Let me see. It's the third a priori argument. Yeah. To say that the current Pope was consecrated Bishop with the new Episcopal consecration, right? Invented by the Paul VI. So he's not Bishop, but to be Pope, one must be Bishop. Therefore the conclusion follows. So, some said Vacantes argue that the current Pope was consecrated bishop with the new rite invented by Paul VI, a rite that they deemed valid. Thus, Benedict XVI, or all the Pope's consecrated bishop with the new rite, which would include Francis, is not a bishop or Pope. Was Paul II, I mean, was uh, John Paul II, was he consecrated bishop before Vatican II? Not sure. The new ritual of Episcopal consecration comes from a prayer in the apostolic tradition, a work apparently from St. Hippolytus and dating from the beginning of the third century. Even if this uh, attribution is probably, it is 
probably uh, wrong, I'm assuming it said. It's not agreed upon by all. Some think that it is an anonymous compilation containing elements of different ages. As for St. Hippolytus, he is thought to have been an anti-pope for some time before reconciling with Pope St. Pontian at the moment of their common martyrdom in 235. It is from the same work that canon number two of the new mass issues. Yet this prayer of the consecration is taken up again with a few variations into Oriental rites. The Coptic rite used in Egypt and the Eastern Syrian rite, used notably by the Maronites. It was therefore adopted by post-conciliar reformers to manifest the unity between the traditions of the three great patriarchates, Rome, Alexandria, and Antioch. So basically, the new rite of consecration is something which was before, uh, which existed, um, obviously in a different form, but existed before. By reason of the closeness to two Catholic rites, it cannot be affirmed that Pope Paul VI's prayer is invalid. What I would, what I would, uh, if anybody's tempted to believe this, I would recommend people read Apostolicae Curiae, and um, and then read what they say about the the form of consecration of bishops, what Leo XIII says, and then also uh, look at um, look at the new uh, pontifical. Isn't it true that the new rite of Paul VI is close to the Anglican rite that was declared invalid by Leo XIII? It is true that the rite of Paul VI is close to the Anglican rite, but not to the rite condemned by Leo XIII. The Anglican and Episcopalian churches also introduced a new consecratory prayer taken from St. Hippolytus with the aim to have a rite acceptable to Catholics after the condemnation of the Anglican ordinations by Leo XIII in Apostolic Curie. So what, what you have to remember uh, right here is that the 1979 Book of Common Prayer happened. So there was uh, a conscious, uh, it, it's not that the the new rite of consecration was drawn closer to the Anglicans. It really was that the Anglicans in the late 1970s decided to do the opposite uh, with their consecration, uh, rite of consecration, is to draw it closer to, um, to the uh, new Catholic pontifical. And... I'm not going to go over the outposteriori arguments. I'm just going to go to part two. Boom. I'm going to check the live chat real quick. see uh we can see that the positive law is no longer enforced although the principle remains yes exactly the theological that that's what uh that's what the article said earlier is that the theological argument was was still in force please see the gary goo quote above did i miss a gary goo quote Yeah, with the uh, with the distinction, I mean, if you if you look at the the part two of that um, that article on John of St. Thomas, where they had the appendix with all the quotes, there is a debate within the Thomistic tradition of whether occult heretics are part of the church or not. But even then, the argument of Bill of Arts still works when it comes to being a member of the church. John Lane used the Episcopal consecration argument, regrets it in his debate with Syngentus. It is a rubbish argument. 
Syriac Rite mentioned. Majority opinion is that they are members. Oh, okay. Yeah, you're just saying it's not relevant to the discussion. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I, w I would concede that um, if, if what you're saying is true. And to be fair, I did. I, I, I guess I kind of dropped the ball on that because I didn't read the context in Garrigou myself. Okay. So let us continue. So this is going to be about the, and I, and I have not ever heard anybody pronounce this in real life. I've just read it. So the, the, I, I just call it the formal material uh, thesis. So that's what we're going to, which we're going to talk about now. So can you explain what it means to be a Pope materially? The main difficult of Sedvacantism is to explain how the church continue to exist in the visible manner for she has received from our Lord, the promise that she will endure until the end of the world while being deprived of her head. The partisans, the so-called uh, material formal thesis, have come up with a subtle solution. The current pope was validly designated as pope. So again, remember the, the dead corpse analogy that I brought up earlier. But he did not receive the papal authority because there was an obstacle in him, heresy. And this is going to be uh, properly called an impediment. So he is pope materially, but not formally. So he's the dead corpse pope. So can you detail the arguments of this thesis? Here are the arguments summarized by a priest who professes them. The starting point is an induction. So an induction is basically you look, oh, chair broke. It's a bad sign. Nope, I fixed it. So an induction is basically when you look at all of the different individuals in a certain class, and then you uh, make a certain uh, general observation about something which is concomitant with the essence of the uh, of that genus of that class so the acts of paul the sixth because uh, it was he at that time who was reigning in rome contribute to the destruction of the catholic religion and its replacement by the religion of man in the form of concealed protestantism from this comes the certitude that paul the sixth does not have the usual intention of obtaining the good end of the church which is jesus christ full of grace and truth the usual intention of obtaining the good of the church is a necessary condition. The ultimate disposition for a subject elected pope to receive the communication of pontifical authority, which makes him to be with Jesus Christ and hold the role of his vicar on earth. Consequently, Paul VI is devoid of all pontifical authority. He is not pope formally. He is not vicar of Christ. In a word, he is not pope. So he's the dead corpse pope. The, uh, this necessitates the affirmation that if Paul VI is not Pope formally, he yet remains Pope materially as a simple elected subject, seated on the pontifical seat, neither Pope nor anti-Pope. So we got the dead corpse Pope up there. Does this solution resolve the difficulty of pure set of Kantism? It does not resolve the difficulty of set of Kantism. How can the church continue to be visible? For some proponents of the, the thesis, there is no longer any hierarchy at all. The nominations of cardinals and bishops are acts of pontifical jurisdiction, which is precisely absent, which nothing can replace. For others, the Pope materially has power, how? To constitute a hierarchy materially. But such a hierarchy devoid of its form is not a visible hierarchy of the church, no more than the orthodox hierarchy is the hierarchy of the church. Moreover, this theory sets off new difficulties, at least for those who say that the Pope materially has the power to constitute a hierarchy materially, because it implies that the Pope materially, devoid of authority, still has enough authority to change the laws on papal election. So basically, 
what uh, what the issues with this thesis are is while they say the Pope is only materially Pope, uh, there seems to be a lot of um, a lot of movement in the corpse, so to speak. There's a, there's a lot of things that the uh, that the Pope is doing that would require him to be, uh, in some sense, formally Pope. So what do you think of the arguments upon which this solution is based? Uh, this solution uh, is not founded on tradition. Theologians, Cajetan, St. Robert Bellamy, John of St. Thomas, etc. examine the possibility of a heretical pope. But no one prior to the council ever imagined this theory of the absence of the usual intention to, uh, to the good of the church that would form an obstacle or uh, impediment to receiving the being with Christ in the form of the papacy. It plays on the ambiguity of the word intention. Proponents of the thesis recognize that the intention must be in the person of the pope. But at the same time, they affirm that it has nothing to do with the personal intention of the Pope. We can agree uh, with them that they say that the recent Popes harmed the common good of the Church. And this is precisely what created the state of necessity. But remains do you prove that such uh, is truly the personal intention of the Popes, and then that such an intention drives them of authority? I'm going to recheck the live chat. So the majority opinion is that they are members. We stand on a call heretics being members. Okay. Yeah, because I know there, I know, I'm trying to remember exactly who was out there denying that a cult member. I think Billow Art was one of them. Maybe Below. I'm trying to remember who exactly it was who said that a cult members uh, are not heretics. Yes, yes, it is the same thesis. Uh, yes, it is held to be by a minority of people who nevertheless have a very large presence online. Yeah. Maybe one of these times I'll, I'll do a stream on, um, it's not below. Oh, it's not. Oh, it's, uh, Franzlin and Journey. Yeah. Okay. Sorry about that. Um, ecclesiology really isn't my, my strongest point. I just know that there, there was a, a sort of minor disagreement on occult heretics being members. So, um, what was I going to say? Yeah, I need to do a stream on Feniism one time. Maybe you could help me with that. I, I don't. I don't know how much experience you have with the the sort of Feniite arguments. But yeah, that, that I guess it's kind of more more uh, uh, better explains um, the. Uh, what am I trying to explain? Sorry, the live chat. No, you're not being annoying. I just can't stop but uh, but looking at the live chat while while I'm speaking. But um, the Feniite position, which is uh, their position on baptism, I guess, provides uh, more precisely the, the distinction between them and everybody else. Because they, are, they, they have plenty of uh, ranty videos on the Feniite position. So the Unakum question. So remember what, what we said before, is that this is the really the distinctive of set of contism. If you ask somebody whether they pray um, unicum in the uh, in, in the, the canon that they pray, they're praying that they are with uh, the Pope in the canon of the Mass. So aren't the set of accountants right to refuse to name the Pope at Mass in order to show that they aren't in communion with uh, a heretic, at least materially, in his heresies? So, so the expression unicum in the canon of the Mass does not mean that one affirms that he is in communion with the person of the Pope and his erroneous ideas, but rather that he wants to pray for the church and for the Pope. 
In order to be sure of this interpretation, in addition to reading the entire erudite studies that have made on this point, it is enough to read the rubric of the Missal for the case of a bishop celebrating Mass. In this case, the bishop must pray for the church uh, and basically, and me, your unworthy servant, which does not mean that he prays in communion with myself, your unworthy servant, which does not make sense, but that he prays in for myself, your unworthy servant. So, yeah, that that's, that's really, and I'm not going to with what St. Thomas says, but I will read their conclusions. What final reflection can be taken from these discussions? It is not suitable to declare that the Pope is not a Pope materially or formally in the name of a theological opinion. On this subject, we show uh, to an interesting article by Father uh, Hurtad that appeared in, uh, yeah, this, the author shows that Savonarola thought Alexander VI, that's, that's who it was, Alexander VI, I couldn't remember which Alexander it was, had been elected with simony, and for this reason he was not pope. However, as the invalidity of a simonist election was only an opinion, Savonarola asked for the uh, convocation of a council where he brought proof that, uh, that Alexander VI no longer had the Catholic faith, and in this way that it was certified that Alexander VI had lost supreme jurisdiction. So, be like Savonarola. Um, if you if you have uh, these opinions, make sure you ask for the convocation of council, and uh, and provide proof. Which with Alexander the Sixth, uh, it was it was pretty bad. In conclusion, how would we think of Sedevacantism? It is a position that has not been proved speculatively, and it is imprudent to hold practically. Uh, imprudence that can have very serious consequences. Think notably of people who deprive themselves of the sacraments on the pretext that they cannot find a priest who has the same opinion as they do. And I think that is, that is a very, uh, and I think with Michael Lofton's stream that he had the other day on the diamonds and their position on where to get the sacraments, I think that is, that certainly um, comes through in what they say. Uh, that if you're going to have a position that uh, for them, at least, is excluding 99.9% of the sacraments they're able to receive. They rarely, if ever, are able to receive the Eucharist. And they rarely or ever are able to receive the sacrament of penance. So it can actually be very practically dangerous if you're going to hold that that form of set of occultism. This is why Archbishop Lefebvre never entered onto this path and even forbade the priests of his society to profess set of occultism. We must trust in his prudence and theological sense. I'm going to have a final check of Oh, uh, Christian, what you're saying about the unicum being distinctive a set of accountism is not correct. Man, there are some set of accountants who pray the unicum. Interesting. Sede his Mormonism with extra steps. I, I don't I don't get the uh, I don't get the connection. Uh, I think the Mormons themselves believe that the LDS is wrong, that only the Catholic Church is the only legit Christianity. Oh, that if the LDS is wrong. Oh no, we don't pray it. Okay. I was trying to clarify. The question is, oh, okay, 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 okay. And now I understand. The question is one of laymen attending masses offered by priests who named Francis. Okay, okay, okay. 
Now I understand what you're saying. Okay. Yeah, your priests don't say it, but laymen in uh, in some forms can. I, if you if you go to like the the diamonds, who again, as I'll reiterate, are very extreme, they're going to they're going to say that uh, you can't even attend a mass where Francis is named. Would Vatican Catholic be considered Fenite? Yes. Okay. Now I understand what you're saying. Okay. I'm getting. I'm getting it. Back to the back to the Mormon thing. I think the Mormons themselves believe that if the LDS is wrong, the only the Catholic Church is the only legit Christianity. Yes, I th I think that's it's kind of weird that there's like that connection right there. That's such an odd connection. So we're very different than the the Mormons. Mormons are like a sort of like cringe Protestant offshoot schizo ranting. Okay, so no one thinks any priest should name Francis. So the should there is very important. But it's a different question about attending such masses, not all agree. Yeah. Do the Diamond Bros ever believe that Father Feeney was legitimately consecrated? What do you mean Father Feeney was legitimately consecrated? Okay. I've never heard of Father Feeney being consecrated. That like is that like a level of that is that a level of um like set of a contism I've never even like encountered. I've heard all of like the interesting stories that have happened within within like set of a contest groups. Okay, so many set of a believe that while naming Francis is a mistake, it doesn't make the priest not Catholic, nor that it makes his masses sacrilegious or unapproachable. Okay. Yeah, basically, I'm kind of... Uh, I think he uh, meant ordains, as it would have been maybe after Pius XII. Oh, oh, let me, let me see. When was Father Feeney ordained? Oh, no, he was ordained in 1928. Oh, yeah, he was... He was ordained in 1928, yeah. And it's kind of funny because I don't know why everybody, uh, why like the, the Feeneyite set of a contests, like get all on Father Feeney. Like, oh my, my Father Feeney. Because he ended up saying the Novus Ordo at the, at the end of his life. And he ended up reconciling to the church too. So, who knows? One day, Father Feeney. Uh... Oh, bro, what? And, uh, man, this is... Would SSPX priests give Holy Communion to a set of a contest? I'm not sure. Actually, I've never... And by many set of a contest, I mean most, probably. Yeah, I've never... never. I, I know you'll have... The, the priests will, will very much not like, not like it if you're a set of a contest, and they will... They will... Um, like try to convince you out of it. Yes, certainly yes. Oh, hmm. yes. Then I guess the answer is yes. I've never, never, uh, unless they're causing trouble. Yeah, I figured that would be generally because I mean, like even myself, I have plenty of disagreements with the SSPX, and I still just go there. So a well-known uh, article. For the Jewish Week newspaper said, in a lesser known case, Richard Cardinal Cushing excommunicated uh, Father Feeney in 1958 for preaching that all non-Catholics will go to hell. That's not 
why. But uh, even though Father Feeney's words were based on the gospel, Cardinal Cushing found them offensive, in a large part because his sister had married a Jew, said Carol. And the Cardinal had grown close to the family, since sensitizing him to Jewish persect, uh, perspective towards proselytization. Hmm. When you look up the early life. Okay. Interesting. Stark raving mad. No. He stated that Newman had done irreparable damage to the church. No. That's crazy. It's very sad. Okay. The Anti-Defamation League. Oh. Hmm. It had correspondence with the FBI. Oh, wow. Look at this. The point. Single year saw the article following articles. Jewish invasion of our country. When everyone was Catholic. Uh, the Jews to control Jerusalem. The efforts of the Jews to control Jerusalem. That would never happen. The Judaizing of Christians by Jews. Um, why the Jews fear the Bible. Sure defense against the Jews. The unholy people in the Holy Land. The action of the Jews. Uh, the Jewish lie about brotherhood. Six points on the Jews. Yeah, he seemed to be. Oh, wait, no, this was after the Jews already been in the Holy Land. I was about to say. Kind of crazy. Uh, yeah. He had a lot of uh, interesting positions. As described as Boston, Boston's homegrown version of Father Charles. Never heard of that guy, actually. Dubbed the radio priest for his anti-Semitism. Did Father Feeney have the noose? <laughs> no. Uh, most SSPX priests don't care. Hmm, there you go. Oh, no. I, bro, Vinso. Dude, that's just mean. You're just being mean now. That's too mean for me to. Does Brother Diamond know about the famous set of a contest named Joe? Who's Joe? Joe Mama. Owned. Okay, that's all I have. So thank you everybody for watching. And oh. The America First Movement, the early 20th century. There you go. I will talk to you guys later.